Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Our sermon text for this morning uh, is, again, Acts 6, verse 8 through chapter 7, verse 53. <clears throat> That's Stephen's sermon, which we began looking at last week. And uh, we, we uh, broke it up a little bit so we could look at a couple of the themes he draws out. Um, before I read uh, Acts, please pray with me. Oh, Father, we thank you that uh, we do not have to rely on our own strength. Uh, that uh, we thank you that I don't have to rely on my own strength and wisdom in preaching, uh, that we don't have to rely on our own ability to change our hearts, um, that we don't have to even work faith up in ourselves, but it is a gift from you. And so, Father, we pray that you would come and that you would meet with us now, that you would uh, use my words, however uh, faltering or foolish they might be, uh, that you would work in our hearts to grant us faith in your word, trust in your word, and that you would use your word by your spirit to change us, to transform us, as uh, Bryce was praying about earlier, to work the gospel deeply into our hearts and minds, uh, that we would live in light of it to your glory. Uh, Father, do that work now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. 
And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals for your feet, uh, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship. 
and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, there is a particular temptation, I think, of religious people to tie God and his work to some specific religious sign or symbol or artifact, an image maybe, like an icon or a cross, a building, or certain cultural forms, like Western music or even a certain political party. And then we we take those symbols and signs or artifacts or whatever it is, and we say God is at work here and here only. Now there's sort of an opposite temptation as well, a a non-religious temptation, if you will, uh, maybe coming from a a more modern secular view of God, that if there is a God, uh, he's at work everywhere and among everyone without distinction, right? That there's no single sign of his presence. And people are quick to say, right, religions just put God in a box, right? But, but they say God cannot be put in a box. Well, it probably won't surprise you to hear me say uh, that God is neither tied to an image or a building or a culture, but nor is he at work everywhere among everyone without distinction. Uh, but God is present and at work in and through his Son, And that's really the summary of what we're going to talk about this morning, that that God's presence and work are are not tied to the work of our hands, but God is present in Jesus and by his Holy Spirit. So you can see uh, your outline on the back of the bulletin. We're going to talk about three uh, main uh, things. Uh, One, that our temptation, we're going to talk about our temptation to tie God to created things. Then second, uh, we're going to talk about God showing up in the least expected places. And then third, God's presence in Jesus and by his spirit. Then we'll apply those things uh, briefly to to three uh, points you can see at the end there. And the question maybe for you to be asking as we work through this, which may or may not mean a lot to you yet, but uh, is to what do you tie the work of God? Uh, to put it differently, right? How do you answer the question, not theologically necessarily, I, I hope you know the right theological answer, but, but in your heart, uh, where is God at work? 
how do we limit God by tying his work to something in the created order? Well, remember where we are, right? Stephen is uh, one of the first deacons. He's going about speaking about Jesus. And some of his fellow Greek-speaking Jews uh, began to oppose him. They didn't like the things that he was saying about Jesus, about the temple, about the law of Moses, though they couldn't refute his arguments. And so they began to falsely accuse him of blasphemy. Uh, They said he speaks against Moses and God. He speaks against the law and this holy place. He says Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses, they say. And notice there are really just two points in their accusation that they keep repeating again and again, which is uh, Stephen is speaking against Moses or the law on the one hand, and he's speaking against God and his holy place on the other. And uh, Stephen is brought before this council and he's asked for a defense. Was he really teaching these things, right? Uh, He's asked by the high priest. And last week we saw that Stephen doesn't actually defend himself, but he actually goes on the offensive. And he charges his hearers with two things. And first, we saw last week that they are actually the ones who reject Moses, just like their forefathers. Uh, They reject those whom God raised up as leaders and saviors for his people. Not only Joseph and Moses, but ultimately Jesus was rejected by his own. And even Stephen, right, right now in this moment, Stephen himself, who is bringing God's word to them, they reject Second, this week, we're going to see that they cling to created things uh, rather than the, the intangible and invisible God, right? Their focus is on the temple, and their focus on the temple is actually a continuation of their temptation to cling to created things. So that brings us to our first point. Our temptation is to tie God to created things. Now, as... <coughs> As Stephen marches through his review of history, he comes to Moses, he comes to the burning bush, he comes to the Exodus, and then we read this in verses 39 to 43. Stephen says, Our fathers refused to obey him, refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside in their hearts, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out, From the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. See, right on the heels of the Exodus, Israel turned to the golden calf. Right? Israel uh, began to worship idols in the wilderness, a calf that was the work of their hands, Stephen says, images that they had made to worship. And Stephen makes a, a rather bold move next, and that is that he seems to put the temple in that category. Look at verses 44 to 48. He says, Our fathers had the tent of a witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove them out before their fathers. So they had the tent of witness. They had the tabernacle. They brought the tabernacle into the promised land. 
Uh, and so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, that is a permanent dwelling place. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And then this, this next line is what's so key. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Right? Solomon builds a house, yet, he says, God does not dwell in houses made by hands. And uh, Stephen calls the temple a house made by hands. The same thing he just said about the idols. The same thing he said about the golden calf. He says about the temple. And, and you wonder, well, wait a minute, wasn't the temple God-given? I mean, God gave them the temple. Of course it was. But, you know, sometimes uh, even God-given things can be misunderstood and misused. You know, once uh, Israel, uh, in Israel's history, they had disobeyed uh, and, and God sent serpents to bite and punish Israel. You remember, remember this story in the book of Numbers. It's, a, it's kind of an odd story, but the people relented and repented, and uh, God had Moses make a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. Do you remember this story? God makes a bronze serpent, Moses does, sets it on a pole that Israel might look to the one that was lifted up on the pole and be healed. Spoiler alert, right? It's about Jesus who was lifted up on the cross that all who look to him might be saved. But that's not the point. The point now is later in Israel's history, Israel began to worship that staff. And King Hezekiah had to destroy the staff that Moses had made to stop Israel from worshiping it as a god. And the point is that even something good and God-given like that staff or like the temple can be misused and twisted by our sin. And, and at almost every point in Israel's history, Israel wanted to tie God to created things, to idols, to buildings, to artifacts. Why? Right? Why, why try to tie God to some created thing? Why, why, why the impulse to point to a, a golden calf that you just made and say, here is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt? What sense does that make? Well, we might get another answer or an answer to that question from another snapshot of Israel's history. There was another point where uh, they were uh, in the promised land and they had just lost a battle with the Philistines, right? They're, they're sort of arch enemies, the Philistines. And in 1 Samuel 4.3, we read that when the people came to the camp and the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines, right? Why did we lose? Why, why did this battle uh, go the way it did? And then they say, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Why did they bring out the Ark? I mean, I mean this was literally their God box, right? Uh, they, 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 they actually thought that if they brought that box out onto the battlefield, that God would come and save them. Again, the Ark was God-given but it was misunderstood and misused by Israel. And so, you see, if God is tied to something visible and tangible, like God is in the ark, or God is in the temple, or God is in this staff, then God can be controlled. Right? If God is literally or figuratively in the box, so to speak, then I can take God where I want. If I want him to go out into battle with me to the Philistines, I just take the box out to battle with me to the Philistines. God suddenly is under my control. 
If I know that God is in my church or my denomination or my theology or my worship style, then I know that God is with me because I have these tangible physical signs. I do the right thing. I worship the right way because I attend this church of this denomination with this theology. Uh, right? we, we tie God to a place like the temple or, or to a, an artifact like the ark or to a denomination or to a culture. That allows me then to control God, or at least so we think. You know, we, we read earlier uh, some verses from Isaiah chapter 66, and uh, verses 1 through 4. And just after those verses, uh, God says that Israel, as they are bringing their offerings to God, they were unclean. They're bringing these offerings. One, and he lists all of these offerings. And he says, they're unclean. They're unclean every time. Why? Why would he say that? Well, uh, here's what he says. He says, These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. You see, how can sacrifices be something in God does not, something in which God does not delight? Well, notice, they, they, they had chosen their own way. They had refused to listen. Well, then why sacrifice? Why go through the motions of sacrifice if you're not actually going to listen to God in the first place? Well, the assumption is that if they do these religious things, well, then God will have to bless me. If I go through these motions and come to the temple and offer up my sacrifices, of course God is going to bless me, even if I don't listen to his word, even if I don't uh, follow his ways, I'm going through the right motions. I'm doing the right thing. So they trusted in the sacrificial system, uh, but they did not listen to God. They trusted in what their eyes could see, the temple. They trusted in what their hands could do, the sacrifices, rather than in the God of mercy and grace. Him they ignored. Just as Stephen accuses uh, his hearers of clinging to the temple, but ignoring the prophets. And the truth is, again, you know, we don't have the temple uh, like they did, uh, but we tend to tie God to all kinds of things. Uh, images, the temple, the land of Israel, a, a particular style of worship, a denomination, a, a theology, a culture, a political party, a, a certain way of living. We tend to tie God's presence to things, to tangibles, to visibles. Uh, we, we don't like invisible, invisibles, right? We don't like intangibles. Uh, we, we want a God that we can see and handle and touch and manipulate and control. Uh, so we tie God to things that we can see or we can do. We expect God to respond to our religious works, to our moral deeds. If I do this, then God will do that. So the question for, for us, right, is, okay, well, what, what about you? What, what do you tie the presence of Jesus to? Uh, do, do you tie Jesus' presence, uh, you know, some might, to their church building? We probably don't do that because we meet here in the Y, right? We don't have a church building. Okay, great, check. Um, what about, what about to our, our, our cultural worship style, right? That this is where God meets with people, when they worship like this. When they, when they sit in neat rows and they hold their hymns quietly, it's not like that in many other parts of the world, right? But do we, do we tie God to this style, this way of worship? Do we tie God even more narrowly to our denomination? Like we know God, yeah, God loves the PCA. Not those other denominations out there, right? I have questions about them, but the PCA, I'm sure he loves the PCA. 
one way of getting at this question is, is who do you look down on? Uh, you know, I, I do, I do uh, at times tend to judge people with different worship music. Um, you know, I can pick it apart and talk about how it's not theologically sound and, you know, how the tune doesn't fit the music or, or the tune doesn't fit the words or whatever, you know, like, right? You just pick, we can be really critical. Um, different styles of preaching, right? I can tend to judge other styles of preaching or, uh, or people who use different Bible, Deborah and I were talking about Bible translations the other day. She just rolled her eyes at me, which is the right response. But, um, but uh, you know, it's easy. It's easy to, to pick out all these differences and begin to judge and look down upon as if God only works through the ESV, right? Or whatever your favorite Bible translation is. <laughs> Even, uh, even our theology, right, uh, is in a sense man-made. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, um, but the way we formulate things, right, somebody came up with that. That's not bad. That's what we do with theology, right? We take the scriptures, we interpret it, we formulate things. That's good. That, that doesn't make it wrong. But do we limit Jesus' presence and work to only those who agree with, with the way we formulate things. Um, that unless they subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, God's not at work in that church. Right? Again, I love our theology, but, but does God show up only if you're Reformed? I don't, I don't think so. Right? The answer is no, just in case you were wondering. Um, which brings us to our next point, uh, which is that God shows up in the least expected places. Uh, Stephen's whole talk leading up to this point about God not dwelling, uh, is leading up to this point about God not dwelling in houses made by hands, right? He's slowly making his way to this point. And notice Stephen is constantly mentioning where God met with his people. Uh, where did God appear to Abraham? In Mesopotamia, verse 2. Uh, where was God with Joseph? In Egypt, verse 9. Where was Jacob buried? In Shechem, verse 16. Where was Shechem? It was in Samaria, a place that the Jews hated and despised. Uh, where did God meet with Moses? In Midian. Uh, where, where was this holy ground where uh, they met? Well, it was at Sinai. God, God didn't meet with his people all throughout at the temple because there was no temple. He didn't meet with them in the tabernacle because there was no tabernacle. He didn't even meet his people uh, half the time in the promised land proper. It was mostly outside of Israel. And nevertheless, God met with them, right? He was with them. He cared for them, whether they were in Egypt or Midian or even in Samaria, the Israel, Israel of Stephen's day thought that God worked in, uh, alone in the temple. Right? Only if you had access to the temple. Uh, worse, maybe, that, that God could or would work alone in the temple. Um, but where had God actually been present? All through Israel's history, in Egypt, in Samaria, in Midian. Uh, not necessarily nice places, right? But that, but that was where God met with his people. Uh, in, in maybe in even the least expected places, in the place of slavery in Egypt, in the place of exile in Midian, in the place of wilderness in Sinai. That's where God met his people. And it's true, uh, you know, God cannot be contained. 
not the way we would like to contain him. Uh, we must not tie God's presence to a place or a culture or even a theology, even a good one, um, because there are places, right, where we are surely wrong, and if we tie God to our wrong theology, we're going to miss what God is actually doing. On the other hand, uh, right, God, God often meets us where we don't expect, in our struggles, in our loneliness, in our wilderness. We, we want God to meet us in our strength, to think that God is near us when things are good, but more often than not, it's just the opposite. Uh, God meets us in our pain and in our brokenness and in our sin. That is, he meets us when and where we least expect it. Israel trusted in what their eyes could see, the temple. They trusted in what their hands could do, the sacrifices, but they didn't listen to God. We often expect God to respond to our, our works, to our, our moral deeds. But God shows up not in response to our works, but he shows up in our suffering. He shows up in our brokenness and sin to show us mercy and grace. God is present in the least expected places, like the cross. Which brings us to the next point, that God is present in a person. He's present in Jesus. Um, again, we, we tend to tie God's presence to, uh, to religious relics or places or activities. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there are those whose temptation is to say that God is at work uh, everywhere among every people without distinction. And, uh, you know, who are, who are we to say that God is only at work in some places and not all places? And, and they see it as, as pride or arrogance to say that God is only at work here and not everywhere. Uh, well, Stephen was definitely correcting his fellow Jews for their fleshly attachment to the temple, right? That they, they were attached to the temple, but, but that didn't mean it was just kind of a, a willy-nilly free-for-all. Uh, remember their accusation of Stephen. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. That was their accusation. We've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place. Why did they accuse Stephen of that, of saying that Jesus would destroy this place? Well, they accused Jesus of the same thing. Uh, do you remember that back in, in Mark's gospel, we read uh, that certain false witnesses, again, uh, say, we heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, why did they accuse Jesus of saying that? What was the kernel of truth in their words? Well, Jesus did say, you remember in John uh, chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But what was Jesus talking about? Jesus was talking about not a temple made with hands at all, but he was talking about his body. He was talking about his death and his resurrection. So what was Stephen saying, likely, that caused his fellow Jews to think he was speaking against the temple? Why would they make the same accusation? Well, in some ways, we, we, we don't know exactly what Stephen said, which is frustrating, right? We wish we had all of the interactions that came before this. But maybe Stephen was talking about Jesus being the true temple, the same thing Jesus was talking about. That, 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 that temple that was destroyed at the cross and that was raised up on the third day. You see, the, the, the Jews thought that God was present in the physical temple. And yet even Solomon uh, had prayed at its inauguration. You remember 1 Kings, Solomon said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. That was Solomon's prayer. But they had forgotten that. You know, God was not contained in a building. Though he did cause his name to dwell there for a time. 
God did cause his name to dwell in the temple, but then God himself came in Jesus. God showed up, right? God tabernacled among us, John says. The word became flesh. God became a servant. The divine clothed himself in humanity. You see, Stephen's gripe with his fellow Jews was not that God is at work everywhere. It was not that uh, the temple itself was a bad idea. It was God-given after all, and, and, and God did work in and through it for a time. Stephen and, and Jesus as well taught that the temple was superseded right, by the coming of Jesus, that the temple had been replaced, as it were, by the person. Uh, the temple was a mere picture of God dwelling among his people. Jesus was God actually dwelling among his people. His sermon, uh, Stephen's sermon, doesn't distinguish between sort of a, a localized God and a God who is at work everywhere, a universal God, but his sermon is about a, a redemptive historical distinction, right? A, a, a distinction in history, the history of God's work of redemption. That God was once at work in and through the temple, but now God is at work through his son, the one to whom the whole temple system pointed. See, this is part of the, the scandal of, particular, the, of particularity of Scripture, that God is at work in one particular place. It's true through Jesus by His Spirit. That's the only place God is at work, through His Son. And, and talk about unexpected, right? God shows up as a Jewish carpenter in Bethlehem. He shows up on a cross in Jerusalem. He shows up Easter morning in an empty tomb. And regardless of how much the Holy Spirit prophesied it and Jesus explained it, nobody saw any of that coming. And so while we cannot limit God to the work of our hands, right? We, we can't put God in a box as people say, God has come in a person. Just as people came to the temple to meet with God, so we come to Jesus to draw near to the Father. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is our great high priest, right, who has passed through the heavens and entered into the throne room of God. And Jesus has sent his spirit that he might be with us. And so now we have the presence of Jesus in us and we have access to the Father's throne of grace in him. So Christianity teaches, right, that while God's presence is not tied to a specific place or a specific image or culture or style, God makes himself known through his Son, that God works through his Son by his Spirit. So Stephen has, and, and, and through his sermon, and we have, uh, through this sermon, uh, spent a lot of time arguing that God is not limited to temples or images or idols, but you might ask, okay, so what? Um, so God is in Jesus, all right, what difference does that make practically? Well, the, the most significant difference is that uh, if you want to know God, uh, you have to come to him through Jesus. At whatever place of worship you might attend or rituals you might go through or morality you might hold to or relics you might bow down before, they're all ultimately meaningless and that they don't bring you into fellowship with God. God is found in Jesus. And if you want to come to the Father, you must come through the Son. Jesus himself said, again, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's how we approach our God, through his Son. But there are uh, three other sort of implications or applications of this that I want to point out. I'll keep them short, and, but I'm also going to flip the last two as they are in your bulletin. So I'm going to talk about the first and then the third and then the second. So uh, just in case you're following along there. Um, 
first, this idea that, that God is present in Jesus is actually what enables the missionary expansion of the church. Uh, Stephen's speech is at this pivotal point in the book of Acts. Jesus said, Acts 1-8, right, that the apostles would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, but up to this point, they haven't actually left Jerusalem. Uh, but in the next chapter, chapter 8, suddenly the gospel is going to go out. The gospel is going to go to Samaria, of all places. It's the first step out from Jerusalem toward the ends of the earth. But here's the thing, if God is only at work in the temple, or worse, only present in the temple, then the missionary of the church, uh, missionary expansion of the church is actually hindered. Uh, wherever the good news would go, people have to come back to Jerusalem to find communion with the Father. But if God is present in His Son, who is with us by His Spirit, then wherever we go with the gospel, there God goes with us. This is the promise of Jesus in Matthew 28, right? Jesus commands the apostles to go and make disciples of all nations, and he promises, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm going to go with you. God's presence goes with us in our workplaces, in our classrooms, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, to produce the missionary expansion of the church. God goes with us as the gospel goes forth. Uh, now, our temptation today is not typically to tie God's presence to the temple, to a building, though sometimes, but, uh, but typically we, we end up tying God's presence to some particular cultural expression of Christianity. Uh, and that, too, hinders the missionary expansion of the church, doesn't it? Uh, if God is only present in one type of music or in one political party or something like that, when we preach the gospel, we're not simply calling people to Jesus, but we're calling them to our culture. Which brings us to the next point, which is the third point uh, at the bottom, the last point uh, in your bulletin, um, that God's presence in Jesus defines the ecumenical unity of the church. Uh, you see, just as the temple system meant God's people had to come to Jerusalem to meet with him, uh, so it meant a continued division between Jew and Greek. The Jews had the temple, others did not. It was as simple as that. And Christ, in making a new and living temple made up of Jew and Gentile, he brings peace. He brings reconciliation, unity to humanity in him. And what happens when we tie God to a specific place or to a specific building or to a specific worship form or even specific denomination? Well, for one, pride, typically. Uh, you know, we have God's presence. Once we tie God's presence to something tangible, we can boast. We can boast in having the symbols of God's presence, right? Whatever it is, the great buildings, the right theology, sometimes even the, a good life, right? Clearly, I have God's presence. Look at how good my life is. We point to these things as proof that God is with us. And, and then we focus on the thing itself, uh, th that thing to which we have tied God. We delight in the symbols of God's presence in our midst because we think that they assure us of his blessing, just like Israel did with the ark. Oh, we have the ark. God is going to fight for us. We think the same thing. We, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith. God is going to fight with, for us. And you end up serving the symbols, whatever they are. Right? If, if, that's, if that's wealth, if you think wealth is a sign of God's blessing, you end up serving your career so you can boast of God's blessing. Look at how much he blesses me. Look at the money I, I rake in. Or if you think that it's a church building is a sign of God's blessing, then you end up devoting yourself to having the best kept, most beautiful building in town. 
Or if you think your theology is a sign of God's blessing, you spend all your time devoting yourself to theology, studying theology, defending your theology. And all of that, so you can say, look at this sign of God's presence. Of course God loves me. Who could ever doubt it? And then fear comes in, right? Because, well, if I lose this thing, we lose God. If this thing is threatened, my relationship to God is threatened. And so we begin to despise others who threaten these things, who might argue with our theology or do worship differently. Because it's not just that I can talk about worship or I can talk about theology, but if, if I think I have God because I have these things, and you say, oh no, these things are wrong, right? suddenly you're the enemy. Since we see our, our cultural forms as signs of God's presence and assurance of his continued blessing, we can't reconcile that with differences. I can't say, oh, it's, it's, yeah, we can agree to disagree. I can't do that because you don't have God and I do. I can't leave it at that. And what that does, it, it ends up dividing Christians and not bringing unity. But God is present with us not because we get everything right, thankfully, or because we have one set of cultural forms instead of another. He's present with us because of Jesus. God's love is secure not because we do worship right or get theology right, but because of the cross where Jesus bore our sin, because of his righteousness, which is ours by faith. Recognizing that God is present in Jesus shows us what truly unifies. We belong to Christ. We, God is present with us in Christ. We have a common faith with those who confess Christ, right? The second person of the Trinity incarnate in human flesh who died on the cross and rose from the dead. That Christ we have a, a deep unity with all those who confess this Jesus and only those who confess this Jesus, right? That's why Jesus defines for us what the unity of the church looked like. Those who are in Christ, we, we have unity with them in Christ. Those who do not trust in him, those who are outside of him, we have no unity with them. Paul tells us in Ephesians that Jesus came to tear down the dividing wall of hostility and bring peace. And there he's talking about peace between Jew and Gentile, but that's true of people, right? Whatever earthly divisions there might be, Jesus and Jesus alone defines and enables unity in the church, which means we can celebrate God at work in other Christians, in other churches, even in other denominations, if they, as long as they confess Jesus, the true Jesus found in Scripture. Third, God's presence in Jesus informs the corporate gathering of the church. Now, in, in the Old Testament, when God's people wanted to draw near to him, ultimately they had to go to the temple. Uh, but now God has come in Jesus, and Jesus is building a new temple, the, the New Testament says, a living temple made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And that the true temple is Jesus and the church, his body, the place where he dwells by his spirit. And so when you come to church, the gathering of God's people, we come to meet with Jesus. We don't look to the building itself or to certain forms or certain images or anything like that, but simply the gathered body of God's people. Wherever God is, there is holy ground, right? That, that was true at Sinai when God said to Moses, take off your sandals for the place where you walk is holy ground. Well, Jesus says where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in our midst, which means this room as we gather here is holy ground because God's people have gathered and Jesus is here in our midst with us. 
And so we, when we gather on Sunday morning, God is with us. Not because we, not because we have everything right, not because we know that the magic words or perform the, the magic acts to make him present. Uh, no, but because of his promises in Jesus. When we gather by his grace, Jesus is here with us. Now, I'm not sure uh, what you might be tempted to tie God to, whether a thing or a belief or whatever, uh, but God cannot be tied to created things, right? He cannot be manipulated or controlled. Rather, God has shown up in his son Jesus that his gospel might go forth, that his people might be one, and that his church might draw near in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we confess that, I confess how easily and how quickly I can begin to think that you, you only show up when, uh, when people are like me, uh, when people believe exactly like me or, or dress exactly like me or read the same translation or whatever silly thing it is, Father. It's so easy to begin to look down on those with whom I, I am united in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would forgive me for that and that you would help me to, uh, to look to Jesus as the source of all unity in the church and help me to know that your presence is, is with us, not, not because we have it right, uh, but because of your grace found in the cross, found in the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.